Hello, this is Randy McGilberry, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. You have found the premier place in existence to hear from all your favorites current and former Royals players on Clubhouse Conversation. What's up? It's Davo. Glad you're along today as we are about to be joined live by Randy McGilberry, who pitched for the Royals from 1977 to 1978 after they took him in the 14th round of the 1975 draft. Randy McGilberry, a hard-throwing right-hander, about six foot one, and a cool story. Grew up in the Mobile, Alabama area, did McGilberry. Ended up going to Louisiana Tech, was drafted by the Mets out of high school, but did not choose to sign with them. We'll find out the answer of why here in a little bit. But McGillberry then ends up at Louisiana Tech, throws a no-hitter his first game in college. Can you believe that against Ole Miss? <laughs> Pretty cool story there. Threw another one that freshman year as well against Northeast Louisiana. Went on to be a two-time conference player of the year there. In college, then he ends up with the Royals as they take him in 1975. The rest is history. As I said, he makes it up to KC from 77 to 78. A lot of interesting stories from a guy that I've really come to admire. I've gotten to know Randy a little bit, and he joins us now on Clubhouse Conversation. Randy McGilberry, first of all, thanks for hopping on with us, and how's everything going with you? Well, everything's going fine. I'm moving towards retirement and trying to get my uh, fishing license in order so I can do a lot of fishing. Well, that sounds like a good retirement to me. You, you, are you down in, uh, where are you living at these days? Well, I'm originally from Mobile, and that's where I, I grew up in a little town around Mobile called Saraland. Uh, but I'm in Pensacola right now. I work for ExxonMobil, and uh, I've had a few roles here. But right now, I'm currently the uh, facilities and uh, maintenance store supervisor. Oh, very cool. And uh, so we live in a little town called Cantonment, just north of uh, Pensacola. And uh, I've been here almost eight years. Uh, well, I have been here eight years and um, working on uh, trying to work about four more years and move on into the, the days of fishing and coffee. There you go. There you go. I love that. Did you get a chance to watch uh, the Royals months during the 2014 postseason run, that amazing run they had? Yeah, I watched a lot of baseball. And I'll tell you something. Uh, I was listening to Frank White's program uh, yesterday. And I heard him say something about the 29-year uh, run that uh, without any significant change. And uh, I remember our team, and I remember how versatile our team was and how many uh, times we were sitting there in the playoffs and going to the World Series and things like that. But uh, the team that I saw this past year in the World Series uh, reminded me a lot of what we had. Uh, they didn't. We played a lot of small ball, but they reminded me more of what we did when we played uh, than any other team since then. So yeah. that's kind of. It was kind of refreshing to see the the guys that could step up. And I know that you know they were 90 feet from a opportunity of of uh, pulling the pennant in, but. You know, that's that's the game of baseball. It's a game of inches, and uh, 
but to see them do what they did uh, in the basically the uh, playoffs and uh, all that, it was amazing to see that. And boy, I tell you, that really it makes the hair on your neck stand up if you're a true Royals fan. Yeah, especially after all those years like you talked about there. Uh, right. Now, a couple other things about today I wanted to talk about. Now, a belated congrats to you on 2010. So you went into the Mobile, Alabama Sports Hall of Fame. How cool was that? Well, I'll be honest with you. I had uh, My name had been up several times before that, and uh, and it was an honor. I mean, it's always an honor, especially when you're you're standing at the podium and you're looking out at all the people that uh, were your peers, uh, your teammates, uh, people that you you grew up admiring all those years because these are guys that played professional football, basketball, baseball, golf, you name it. And um, uh, it was several years ago when somebody put me up for it, and they were real disappointed that I was not uh, elected to go in. But I, I basically had a – when people found out about it, there was some response in the Mobile area. And you got to remember now, I'm not a Mobile proper boy. Uh, I grew up in Saraland, and the area that I grew up in, we formed a, a league up there called Tri-Cities, which was uh, Saraland, Satsuma, and Chickasaw were the three cities that combined their uh, youth baseball programs and, and had their summer seasons. Uh, and we were very successful. We uh we managed to whip most of the Mobile teams every year. We always went to the state playoffs, and uh, we even went to the World Series one year at South Alabama. So um, we come from a pretty strong background, but when you see people writing in that know you and responding to the fact that I was not elected and you see that outpour every year, they are, they're, what about Randy McGilberry? That makes you realize that more people know you than you think. Right. Right. So, yeah, that's a cool feeling. It was it was definitely a, a humbling honor. Yeah. Well, now speaking of that, the Mobile area, then. So, so let's kind of go back to when you're growing up. I've read uh, that you credit your father Doug for pushing you to be your best. So, so talk more about him and then how he helped you become the player you were. Well, I had a dad that grew up. Um, he was uh, between the Depression and uh, uh, the '50s area, and Dad was. Uh, you know, he grew up as a kid that had to work, and uh, all the kids in the families back then, they did whatever they could do to, you know, uh, aid the family. Uh, Dad got to play a little uh, sandlot baseball and stuff like that and played a little high school football, but uh, he never really got to pursue his dream because he was constantly working to bring help bring money into the family. So uh, he pushed me. I mean, he knew what it took. But he had basic skills. He didn't. He didn't have any uh, skill sets that would make him uh, attractive to anybody. But he had basic knowledge and he had basic skills, which you know, obviously, when it, when all else fails, that's what you go back to. Uh, but the problem with me was is that he saw what my talent was early on, and uh, when when we he'd get off work, he worked for Alcoa in Mobile, and he'd get off at 3 o'clock every day, and at 3.30, he and I were in the backyard pitching. <clears throat> and uh, even though I didn't want to, I wanted to go play with the kids down the street or something like that, but I was in the backyard throwing a baseball with my dad. Huh. And uh, But uh, all of us, we played all the sports, you know, in the backyard. We played sandlot everything. Uh, but when it got down to it, dad 
made me throw strikes. Uh, if I didn't throw strikes, I ran laps around the house, and I'd come back, and then he'd give me 10 more pitches. He would not allow me to loop the ball into the plate. He made me throw it low and hard. And so even at like four and five years old, I was dealing with this. And, uh, man, I didn't know what I was going to do because I knew I had to live with him at least another 12, 13 <laughs> years. And uh, I didn't know but anything but that. And uh, I got to play youth ball earlier than most did because of my talent. Uh, and uh, that's kind of the way I came up. My dad just worked it and worked it and worked it. So I never really got a break. Uh, I had spring training every day. Huh. Well, we'll talk so, more about this later, obviously, your yep. big league debut and stuff. But was your dad there and everything? Did he get to see that? Uh, he did not. Uh, dad only got to see me play in two uh, major league games. Uh, and the first one was one of those where I, I honestly, this is no lie, looked up in the stands behind the uh, home plate, and I could see, the only head I could see was my dad's, and it was bowed down, and he was shaking his head. And uh, and we'll we'll talk about the incident that took place to cause that, but dad only got to see me pitch against uh, Minnesota two games <laughs> okay yeah we're definitely gonna get to that because i gotta hear that story so well let's <laughs> let's go to so you were drafted out of high school right fifth round by the mets in 72 but you you know elected to go to louisiana tech instead so what made you choose yeah. to go to college and how tough of a you know decision was that to bypass the fifth round well it, it really wasn't a tough decision for me there was a scout named julian mock i believe that was his name i i, I could be wrong uh, but he came to the house after he saw me. I, he, I pitched my senior year. He saw me pitch in the, um, the East-West game. Then he saw me pitch in the North-South game. But uh, later on during the summer, he saw me pitching in the Eddie Stanky League down here. And uh, when he came to the house, they drafted me. And when he came to the house, uh, he sat down at the table and introduced himself and greeted my mom and dad. And Then we said, well, let's get down to business because he was old school. And so he said, let's get down to business. And uh, he said, now, as you know, he said, my personal opinion, Randy's not worth more than maybe $7,000. Uh, but he said, but the Mets have offered me uh, the, uh, or is offering him the opportunity to sign for $21,000 and uh, in college. And uh, I looked at him, and his first words out of his mouth were, the $7,000, I immediately got up from the table and walked out and sat in the den. And I don't know what Dad thought I was doing or what he thought I was doing, but I actually went out there and sat down and had no intentions of going back. And so um, he had, Dad said, son, you coming back in here? I said, no, sir, you can show him the front door. I'm worth more than $7,000. And I said, and I can show where people that have pitched just like I pitch right now have signed for probably five and six times that. But that's okay. Tell him uh, I'll, I'll talk to him later. And so he left. And I made up my mind that uh, I was going to pitch in the uh, I was going to go pitch in the uh, North South All Star Game in Birmingham at Rickwood Field. And uh, I had uh, basically a lot of colleges looking at me then. Uh, there was a lot of people: Ole Miss, Mississippi State, uh, South Alabama, Auburn, Alabama, you name it. They were all talking to me, uh, but I, after talking to them, I realized that you know it wasn't as glorified as all that. And I looked up and saw Pat Patterson standing way up at the top, and that man had gone to great pains to talk with me. And I looked at him up there after I won the pitching trophy and 
said, Mr. Patterson, will you come down here? Yeah, yeah, he ran down there. And Jim Crawford was standing there from South Alabama, too. And uh, I looked him dead in the eye, and I said, have you got a contract with you? And he said, yes, sir, I do. And I said, I'll meet you at your hotel room, and I'll sign with Louisiana Tech. Huh. And that was when all the scouts and everybody just kind of were flabbergasted that I didn't take the offer from the Mets. So that's how that ended up. That's cool. I like that. A, a couple things we learned about you there. You know, it's all about how you treat somebody and, you know, right. rewarding hard work. That's cool. I like that. Um, yeah. Well. So obviously you made the right choice. So you get to Louisiana Tech then, freshman year, two no hitters. There was one against uh, Northeast Louisiana, one against Ole Miss. So talk about what yeah, you remember right. about those games. Well, the one against Ole Miss, um, I got to remember their coach. Oh, shoot. He'd shoot me if he needs to. I don't forgot the coach's name, but anyway, they were recruiting me heavy. Uh, they had uh, Norris Weiss. They had Paul Husband. They had they had the defending SEC team that I would have been pitching for. And uh, their their coach offered me. Um, I think it was going to be a an alumni was going to pay my first year, and then they'd sign me to a three year contract. Well, I'm looking at that like, uh, uh-uh, I'm not going to be on anybody's probationary period. So that's why I signed with Tech. So I'm, I'm, uh, we gone through and played Delta State, and Delta State uh, had just kicked our fannies, and we figured, man, Delta State kicked us, we're fixing to go to Ole Miss, and oh Lord! So we get to Ole Miss, and I get the nod for the first game, first game in college to ever pitch. <laughs> Charlie Pride's in the stands, and so is uh, by the by the uh, way a guy named Paul Tridiac with the Mets. Paul Tridiac tried to get me to sign before I ever started college. Uh, he, he came back and apologized for uh, the treatment from the other scout and tried to get me to sign, and I was asking, I think I asked 40000 plus the incentive bonus plus my, uh, my uh, college. And uh, they wanted me to fly to Birmingham and pitch for, uh, I think his name was Dan Ducat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I told him I'm not flying anywhere. Uh, if you want me, you can sign me for this, or I'm going to college. And so I ended up at college. Well, anyway, so I'm pitching against the Ole Miss Rebels, and I'm running the ball up there pretty hard, and uh, they're hitting it pretty hard. But our defense was fantastic, and uh, my ball was working pretty good. I had a few strikeouts, but mainly I uh, pitched a no-hit shutout against the SEC defending champs as my first game to ever pitch in college. <laughs> That that's got. I wonder if that's a record. I wonder if any other college pitchers throwing a no hitter in their first game. I mean, they probably have, but gosh, that seemed... I, I have no idea. But I can tell you, um, uh, I had Charlie Pride come up and congratulate me, <laughs> I, and I got a future story about him. And then I had uh, Paul Tridiac come and say, "Boy, I wished I had signed you." <laughs> and and I even had my dad compliment me on. Hey, that's the best game I've ever seen you throw. You knew you made it when Pops liked it, right? <laughs> yeah. When, when when my dad gave me positive feedback, buddy, that was something to behold. <laughs> oh, goodness. So while you're there also, so let's fast forward a couple years. You're the Southland Conference Pitcher of the Year. You're also MVP in both 74 and 75. You led your team to the Southland title. So, you know, what else sticks about you know sticks out about your Louisiana Tech days? I played with a uh, a group of guys that, you know, we were strong up the middle. Uh, our second baseman from Satsuma had signed. Uh, Steve Lacey from Kilgore, Texas had uh, signed. And we had Roger Stallings in center field. We had Richie uh, McAllister behind the plate. Richie uh, played with the Boston Red Sox. Um, 
we had Greg Hamilton at first, and uh, we had a kid from Birmingham, Alabama, that played third base. We were strong. Uh, we had guy Bobby Brazier was in the outfield from Bastrop, Louisiana. He was a left-handed hitter, and we had small ball players. We, you know, we hit a long ball every once in a while, but we were small ball players, and and we had some guys that could uh, scoot around the pads. So uh, basically, it, it was a camaraderie that I had in college, uh, more so than high school. Uh, my college days were fantastic days, and uh, <clears throat> the thing that I remember the the greatest about all of that was that it never really sunk in what you had done until you'd done it and in college was over with, yeah. you know, you, you're sitting out here as a, as a guy that's even out of professional ball and you're looking back at the things that you've accomplished because the hall of fame's asking you, show us what your accomplishments were. And you look back down through it and you realize that your college days were probably some of the most, uh, genuine camaraderie days that you ever had uh, because you were truly guys that were trying to reach the ultimate goal, which was professional ball and, and the big leagues. But but it was you still had teammates that weren't looking at you to break your leg. Oh, I can't say that. Maybe there were some guys in the bullpen that thought so. But, <laughs> but, but there was a camaraderie that was unlike any other. It was unlike high school and it was unlike pro ball. So the camaraderie and the, and the teammates. Uh, seen a few of them since then. Eddie Holman, uh, one of the standout pitchers, uh, he pitched the one-hit shutout right behind me uh, with Ole Miss. Wow. And so um, we we had a good camaraderie, and we still touch base with one another. And he's commented on some of the uh, uh, messages y'all have sent across. He He's commented on that. So uh, great days. And a great memories, and uh, actually, I bloomed in college. I bloomed a lot. That's that's cool to look back at that. You're right, though. It's amazing life accomplishments how you don't really appreciate them until a long time later. You know? Right. <laughs> uh, so after 1975, then, so the Royals come into play here. They draft you in the 14th round. Before we talk about that, though, so think back to the whole scouting process. How long have the Royals been scouting you for? You know, do you have any memories of them actually watching you or talking to them before the draft? Yeah. Well, Wayne Causey, I met Wayne Causey way back in the days of uh, high school. I, I want to say I met Wayne Causey uh, one summer. It was before my senior year. I met him, and uh, and then I met uh, – it's hard for me to remember all their names, but there was there were a couple of scouts that I met that had the area, plus, you know, the Stan Wozniaks and the uh, – and the guys that were – there was another scout from Kansas City, and I can't think of his name. He passed away several years ago. Uh, but these guys, I met them and didn't even know – I mean, seriously, I didn't even know Kansas City Royals had a baseball team. <laughs> I'm serious. Because, I mean, you know, I didn't I didn't worry about uh, too much as far as baseball, was watching it on TV and all that stuff, because I was young and just, you know, I wanted to enjoy life. So when I was not – in the backyard pitching with dad or running laps or doing something. I spent much of my time, you know, swimming at the creek with my friends and uh, going on dates with my girlfriend and just enjoying duck hunting and all that stuff. So sports, watching sports on TV, that was not in my, that wasn't in my uh, agenda back in those days. Hmm. So when I met Wayne and he said he was working with the Kansas City team, I thought, okay. Well, I didn't even know they existed. But anyway, uh, Wayne Causey was my introduction, and he scouted me pretty heavily. Um, 
I don't I don't know why I wasn't drafted by Kansas City out of high school. Uh, I didn't really want to play for the Mets. It's not not anything that I had against them. It's just I just didn't really want to play for the Mets. Uh, my heart wasn't with them. My heart was with uh, Bob Gibson in St. Louis back in those days and the New York Yankees. Um, uh, but when the Royals drafted me, I'd, I'd met Gary Blaylock uh, during my college years, and what a fine guy. Uh, one of the nicest gentlemen I have ever met. And uh, Gary scouted me, and and uh, basically he saw me he saw me pitch in Ar- at Arkansas State, and I think that's what sold him on me. Uh, but Gary was the kind of guy that, you know, he'd just come up and talk to you, hey, I'm Gary Blaylock. He'd treat you like a human being instead of talking down to you. He'd talk to you. And uh, I, I really, between Wayne Causey and, and Gary Blaylock, there was a lot of conversation uh, that year because that was my last year in college, uh, as a, well, as a junior before I signed. And uh, I really got to know Gary Blaylock on a little bit more personal level. And when they drafted me, uh, Gary made the offer to me, and I told him, no, I'm just going to finish college, and, you know, hope, hopefully I'll be available next year. I said, money probably won't be any better, but, you know, I'll give it my best shot. And that's really, um, that's how I come to know the Kansas City Royals was those two guys in, in a very short period of time. Now, so were the Royals the team? I mean, think back to draft day itself. So, first of all, where were you at on draft day? How'd you get that news? And then, were they was that about the round you were expecting? And were you pretty sure they were going to be the team that took you? Well, I was in Mobile. I was at my parents' house. I was taking a break between uh, the end of baseball and starting my summer job, which was in Simsboro, Louisiana. There, um, I. I'll be honest with you. I didn't know what to expect. I thought I might go higher because of the the type of uh, uh, accolades that I'd had, the things that I'd done in college. Because, you know, when you're a high school pitcher and you're, you're a standout in Mobile, well, that's one thing. And when you're a standout in your state, well, that's another thing. But when you go to college and you're playing baseball with guys that are the same, they're standouts in their local and state uh, venues, then you get a perspective of, well, maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. And so college was a proving ground for me, and that was another thing, too. And I, I'll be honest about this. I didn't sign with the Mets because I was actually scared to go straight into pro ball and lose the opportunity to play ball in college because I didn't know if I was good enough to pitch in college. I'm dead serious. So I felt like if I went to college where, and, and knew that I was going to be playing in a very competitive conference, that I would uh, – that I would, you know, eventually go pro. And the SEC was obviously, I mean, Mississippi State heavily recruited me. Ole Miss heavily recruited me. And then when I look at that, I'm, you know, man, if you're playing in the SEC, you're playing good baseball. So uh, I signed with Louisiana Tech and get over to Louisiana Tech and thought, okay, well, two weeks after I signed, David, I almost went home. I was homesick. I'd never been away from home. I was homesick. I was uh, around guys that heard that you know you're you're going to go pro and all this stuff and they, you know and I you know I was having to deal with a lot. And two weeks after I got there, I went over to Coach Patterson at the field house and I told him I said, "Gravy, I got to go." I said, "I'm going to go back. I'm just going to uh, take a year off and sign with South and just go to college at home." I said, "I'm tired of this." And he pulled out that little. 
I want to say that was probably an 18 by 24, uh, very nice professionally done poster of our uh, schedule. And he showed me the schedule. Man, we were playing Ole Miss, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, uh, Mississippi State, South Alabama. He showed me all of them. And when he showed me that, and he said, and I promise you, you'll start against every one of these major college teams, I said, I'm, I'm going to stay. <laughs> and so that's what sold me was the – I'd be willing to bet you that in 1973 season, I'd be willing to bet you that Louisiana Tech's baseball schedule was as tough as any college in the nation when you looked at who we played versus what conference we were in. And uh, so – um, I look at that, and I think of of that as far as where where was my career going to go. And I felt like if I can be successful here, I can go to the major leagues. So the history speaks for itself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so you signed with Royals then, and uh, so you didn't pitch professionally in '75. How come they had you wait till '76? Well, in '75, see, I, the season started without me. They wanted me to go sign and go straight to rookie ball and I refused to do it um so I decided to stay at college well in August you know I got to thinking about a few things that had happened in my career at college and I you know I was having a little bit of arm trouble and I thought you know what you only get one shot at your goal in life and you have to be the owner of your life if you're not then you're always going to have somebody else telling you how to make it so I Went to my home after I ran four miles a day at the track, and I always saw my coach out there on the track. And uh, I just got a little fed up with it, and I got thinking about things, and I called Gary Blaylock. And Gary Blaylock was in Sarasota at the academy, and they called him in from the field to come talk to me on the phone. And uh, I told him, I said, Gary, I want to sign. And he said, are you serious? And I said, yes, sir, I'm serious. He said, Randy, he said, I can't offer you a lot. All the money's gone. I said, Mr. Blaylock, I said, I trust you. Just send me what you can. All I want is an opportunity. Uh, <clears throat> I'm getting a little teary-eyed thinking about it. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, Dave. No, that's fine. Um. That was probably uh, the biggest moment in my life because I never had control of saying what I was going to do or anything, and my dad was always uh, disappointed in my decisions. And so I called him up. My little brother was there, and I was trying to get my little brother a scholarship because he had, he was the only person that had broken my state record back then. I struck out 19 in a game, and he struck out 21 in a game of – but he, it took him, I think, 14 innings to do it. Uh, so anyway, he was sitting there, and they had denied him a scholarship to Tech. And I just thought, man, if I can't, if I can't do this, I don't want to do it anymore. So Gary said, I'll do it, Randy. So he said, okay. And I got a letter and a contract in the mail for, I think I signed for um, $3,500 huh. and the incentive bonus and an invitation to Instructional League. Now, that was under the tutelage of Wayne Causey, who I worked with that summer, because I had just gotten fed up with it, and I walked into Wayne Causey's office, and I told him, I said, Wayne, 
I got a dilemma here. I want to play pro ball, and I know I can make it, but I don't know what to do. And he said, well, call Gary Blaylock and tell him you want to sign. So that's exactly what I did. And so I got my little $3,500 bonus. Well, I called my dad up and told him what was going on. Excuse me just a second. And a telephone conversation. Okay. Um, so I was telling my dad about it, and he didn't even speak to me on the phone. He never uttered a word or anything, and it just dead silence. And I finally just hung up and told my little brother. I said, well, I said, there's daddy's answer. <laughs> but I signed anyway, and I went to instructional league, and uh, that's where they taught me how to pitch. Hmm. Huh. Because I was throwing the ball 90 miles an hour in college. And uh, Bill Fisher got with me and started working with me. And they got me to 95 within about, I'd say, 48 to 60 hours. Oh, my god! They had me throwing the ball 95. <laughs> That's amazing. And, but I, I'll tell you, Dave, the reason I'm so moved is because Gary Blaylock was a very special person to me. Um Gary and I, uh, after that instructional league, and I think it might have even been spring training. I think it was spring training of 76. He uh, he basically told me, he said, Randy, he was fishing in one of the ponds in front of the thing, and I was standing behind him. And He said, McGillberry said, well, what do you want to do with your career? And I said, well, I want to be in the big leagues. I said, I've looked at all my comp- competition here, and I said, I can throw with anybody you got here. He said, well, I agree. But he said, but what do you want to do with your career? And I said, I want to be in the big leagues. And he said, well, he said, if I give you some suggestions, will you listen to me? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, what do you think about relief pitching? I said, well, Mr. Blaylock, I said, the first time you ever saw me pitch was after seven warm-up pitches and I walked into a game and blew the doors off the team. He said, yep. He said, you want to be in the big leagues? I said, yes, sir. He said, then we're going to start working on you as a relief pitcher. And I said, absolutely. And so from that day forward, uh, I was worked in as a relief pitcher. Okay. So that answers one of my questions I have here a bit later. Okay. So you get to Jacksonville the next year, 1976. They start you in double A. And so you lead the Southern League in appearances. You get in 44 games there. You struck out more than a hitter per inning out of the bullpen. So that first year in Jacksonville, what are your favorite memories of that year? Dan Quisenberry. Yeah. That was my roommate, <laughs> we, uh, Billy Scripture. Well, I, let me let me tell you the whole story here, and then we'll get to that. Um, originally, I wasn't even scheduled to go there. They were sending me to Waterloo, Iowa, huh. and there was a there was a pitcher by the name of Dale Robat and Quisenberry, and all those guys were on the team. Well, I, you know, and, and trust me, I, I'm not trying to sound egotistical by any means, but I'm telling you the truth. What went down. So uh, when I found out they were not sending me to Jacksonville after I had proved that I, I really probably should have been in AAA, um, but I was willing to take my lumps. Uh, so that also cut me out of the first year incentive bonus. I got to looking at that, and because that was a thousand dollars, and you know back in those days a thousand dollars was like uh, a bank robbery. <laughs> so uh, you, uh, I, I immediately went in to uh, see John Sherholt. And John Sherholz was in the office, and I knocked on the door, and, I, yeah, come in, Randy, sit down. I told him, I said, John, said, I understand y'all trying to send me to Waterloo. He said, no, Randy, we're going to start you out in Waterloo, and if you do good enough, we're going to bring you to double-A. And I said, well, John, let me give you my take on this. I'm better than anybody you got in this camp. 
I've already proven that. And I said, y'all have improved me five miles an hour. But I said, but I'll tell you, I'll make you a deal. I'll go to double A. And if I'm not good enough in 90 days to stay in double A, then you can send me to rookie league. But I said, but I'm not, if I leave this place uh, to go to Waterloo, I'm going to stop in this town called Mobile, and I won't go any further. And I said, and I'll just, you can do whatever you want to do after that. And he said, well, you can't do that, Randy. He said, I said, well, John, you're just going to have to watch and see what I do. Because <laughs> I said, baseball don't own me. I said, you might be able to control contractually. You might be able to control me for a while, but you don't own me. I'll go home. I'll get a job. I'll work, and I'll keep playing baseball, and somebody's going to pick me up. <laughs> but I said, but if I don't go to A. I'm not going to play pro ball for Kansas City Royals. Well, it didn't take but about 15 minutes. They sent Dale Robat to Waterloo and Randy McGillberry and Dan Quisenberry were roommates. <laughs> and I played with a group of guys. That was back when Herman Barrancas, Luis Silverio, um, Gary Blaylock Jr. Um, Willie uh, Wilson, too. Was Willie Wilson was on that team. Yeah, Willie Wilson was in center field. Joe Gates was at second base. Um, man, we had a team and we had some guys, some old guys there. We had uh, a guy by the name of Cowboy, Mark Ballinger, mm-hmm. had a handlebar mustache. I got a, a, a nice picture on my wall, black and white of me, um, Dan Quisenberry, Steve Burke, who back in those days, he'd been drafted by Seattle, but Seattle didn't have a farm system. So we took on, I, I think all the major league clubs took on certain guys from the teams that had not built a minor league program yet so steve burke's in the picture he uh pitched for seattle and then uh the trainer dennis kasperzik and jimmy godet we're all in this picture together and uh we're sitting there in the bullpen and it looks like something out of stinking old west <laughs> uh and uh cowboy was there he had the handlebar mustache and this guy he was oh i could tell you stories all day long about this guy but the model was Dan Quisenberry. Bill Fisher really didn't care for Dan Quisenberry's style of pitching. Uh, he didn't like anybody that came from down under. He liked a guy coming from, he loved me. I'll just put it like that. And um, Quisenberry really wasn't getting a, a fair shake because they just didn't like his style of pitching. But I had this guy that uh, our manager, uh, he he loved Quiz, but they just didn't see eye to eye about his style of throwing. But Quiz always did a good job. But Dan Quisenberry, you got to remember that this guy had, I call him Quisenisms, and uh, this guy come up with more stuff sitting in the bullpen than you could, I mean, I couldn't even believe somebody thought like that. <laughs> and But it was humorous. It was dry humor because it was always trying to look and see what your action would be. But but he and I were like 24-7, and uh, he wasn't married at the time. Uh, and we were living in an apartment, and then later on, Billy Pascal came in and started splitting with us on a, an apartment. And uh, But truly, every payday, uh, we would go get a Whataburger uh, meal, <laughs> and, that, uh, and then that was what we had during uh, one time a month. We, we'd go out and have a Whataburger meal. And then the rest of the time, we would actually go to the store and we'd buy canned peas, English peas, and canned corn, and we would mix them on a stove, and that was our pregame meal 
for, I'd say, probably 80% of the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious. We didn't have any money. We were barely paying the rent. I had a car. Uh, Dan rode with me. Uh, he didn't have his truck down. Uh, he rode with me, and every we shared everything, man. We washed our clothes in the bathtub. Uh, <laughs> but Dan Quisenberry is, is probably one of the best friends I ever had. Hmm. And uh, we shared, anytime we were on the same team, we were roommates. And uh, even in AAA, uh, wherever, uh, bless his heart, I, I, didn't, I didn't get the chance to play in the big leagues with him. But I'll tell you what, that was as fine a young man as I'd ever been around. So that's my memory of Jacksonville. Now, one, one thing you touched on, you said if they sent you to Waterloo, you'd actually stay home. Would you have, honest to God, quit had they, had they sent you to Waterloo? Oh, uh, look, I'm a man of my word. If I tell you I'm going to do something, you can take it to the stinking bank. I love and it. And I told Jake Gibbs, that's who the coach was, I told Jake Gibbs at Ole Miss, I said, you're going to regret this not giving me a full, a full ride. Yeah. And he literally, when we were crossing the field to shake each other's hands, he literally swung me around and kicked me in the butt. He said, you should have been doing that for me. And I said, well, if you'd have given me that extra year, I would have been. <laughs> but... Uh. But uh, that's that's pretty much. If I tell you something's going to happen, uh, you, if I have any control, it's going to happen. Yeah. I told I told people that I'm pitching the big leagues. Now I know that's not all my control, but um, a lot of it is. Your destiny is controlled by how hard you work, how hard you uh, put forth trying to learn new skill sets, and your dedication to the sport, understanding the game, understanding what you need to do, being able to do it. Um, and I told people I'd play in the big leagues, and I wasn't ashamed to say that. Now, not at all. Uh, and, you know, I did. I don't know how else to say it. I'm not trying to sound egotistical or anything, but, you know, there's a lot of men that would love to have done what I did, even though mine was a short ride. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I think about the thousands. Yeah, millions, probably. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so we talked about 76. So you, you start ne- the next year, 77, you start with Jacksonville again. You have a 217 ERA, 29 appearances. Yeah. They call you up to Omaha then. So you uh, 16 games for Omaha towards the end of 77, more than a yeah. K per inning there, ERA at 2.5. You then are a September call-up to the big league. So take us back. Yes, sir. That moment you got the call to the big leagues, where were you at? Who told you? How did they tell you? And who was the first person you called to tell the news? Well, we were in Omaha. I had just pitched, I want to say it was it was either Okie City uh, or it was either uh, it was either the Phillies AAA affiliate or it was uh, Iowa Oaks, uh, the uh, White Sox. But I, I believe it was Oklahoma. Uh, we were we were winning the game by, I don't know, a couple of runs or something. But anyway, I think the bases were loaded. They had their threats up there. Oh, I know it was uh, it was White Sox because uh, uh, Harold Bain was one of them. Uh, I struck the side out nine pitches and walked off the mound. <laughs> and it was in front of Joe Burke. And Joe Burke was there to bring UL Washington up. But uh, I believe at the same time, I believe uh, Al Cowens had been injured. And they so they called me up. So I'm... You know, I go in the clubhouse. Yeah, I'm gassed because uh, I, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, I just blew away a bunch of studs 
with nine pitches, and I'm I'm sitting in the clubhouse right now with a, a beautiful save. So I'm sitting there, and I'm in, I get up, and I go to the shower, and I'm standing there, and John Sullivan was my AAA manager at that time. We're in there getting a shower and everything, and and he I'm washing my hair, and I hear him say, "Hey, kid." You're going to the big leagues. And I said, yeah. I said, if I keep throwing like that, I will one day. <laughs> and he said, no, kid, you're going to the big leagues. He said, you've just been called up. You and UL leave tomorrow morning to go to the big leagues. <laughs> I said, are you serious? He said, well, if you don't believe me, you might want to walk down to my office and ask the guy that told me to send you up. And I said, no, nah, I'll take your word for it. So I got dressed and went in his office, shook Joe Berg's hand, uh, Packed my bags, and UL packed his bags, and the next day we were on a flight to KC. That is so cool. Was it your dad the first call, or who was the first call? Um, actually, uh, yes, it was my dad. Yeah. And uh, I called him from the clubhouse, and I told him, and, you know, he, I could tell he was choked up. And <clears throat> I, yeah, it's pretty obvious I get choked up easy when I think about certain things, but Dad's been gone about three years now, but that was that was uh, it. Should you know, it might have well been Dad making the big leagues because he couldn't say anything, but I could I could hear him breathing. And then he he said, "Gene, he made it." That was my mom, and uh, he hung up. He couldn't talk. So uh, yeah, I got to tell the guy that didn't think I made the right decision that I'd made the right decision. That is awesome. That is so cool. Yep. Um, well, so the first time you walk into a, a big league clubhouse then, so try to think back before your first game, you get called up, you get to KC, what was the mood like and who were some of the guys that kind of took you under their wing right away? Well, I, I knew Steve Busby and Dennis Leonard and, uh, Freddie Patek. I'd been around them a little bit, but, uh, Joe Zeb and, uh, well, Joe Zeb wasn't there yet. Uh, uh, it was, uh, Joe LaHood. Uh, Tom Poquette had been down there some. So I knew a few of the guys through um, through uh, Instructional League. Dennis Leonard was down there every year. And uh, so I got to know him real well. And Dennis and I threw a lot alike. I mean, we were hard throwers. We, we, we brought gas to you. And uh, so Dennis and I could share a lot of stuff, and he could be a good mentor to me. Um, but, you know, when I got in the clubhouse, I was lockered right next to Freddie Patek. And, uh, you know, uh, he was he was humorous because, you know, you didn't encroach on his area, even though your locker space was only so much. And if your stool happened to move into territorial stuff, you know, he kind of, hey, kid, you need to move your chair back over. <laughs> uh, but Freddie was... Freddie was a, a nice guy. He was he was fun to be around, and, and a guy, you know, to look at Freddie on the street, you looked at him and you thought, if somebody told me he played, he was a starting shortstop for the Kansas City Royals, I would kind of looked at him and went, really? <laughs> but I'll tell you what, that guy had some amazing tools, and uh, Freddie was always fighting his weight. You know, uh, he was he was always struggling a little bit with it, but it didn't hamper his abilities. Uh, but UL had been brought up, and, you know, UL was going to get some time there. And, you know, eventually that was what was going to take place is UL was going to move into that slot. Uh, just like um, I can't remember the kid's name that came up uh, from, uh, from uh, I believe, uh, Santa, San Juan or somewhere down there that came up through our system. Uh, there was a Oni Concepcion. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Arne Concepcion, uh, what a, an arm. What a hose that guy had on him. Really? But, but I, yeah, oh, gosh, yes. Uh, but when I, when, I, when I saw the guys that I was playing ball with up there, Frank White, George Brett, Freddie Pontek, John Mayberry, uh, John Watham, Daryl Porter, uh, Pete LeCock, Al Callens, Hal McRae, Amos Otis, Tom Poquette, Joe Zeb, Jamie Quirk, uh, when I sat and I think about all the guys I played ball with and you look at their careers, man, I was bumping elbows with some of the game's best ball players. Yeah. And like you say, you don't realize it until you see that, you know, this this guy named George Brett just happens to be a, a three-decade, you know, bat king uh, just by chance. And then you start looking at people like uh, Jamie Quirk, Willie Wilson, Clint Hurdle, and you start looking at where these guys are going and what they're accomplishing and all this stuff, and, and uh, these guys just did it out of just pure raw talent. It, it was baseball at its best. I was so proud to be amongst the Larry Gurs and the Paul Splitorfs and the Steve Mingors and the Doug Birds and the Steve Busbys and the Dennis Leonards. Those guys and the, and the Marty Patton. When I when I sat and I looked at what I was associated with, man, that was baseball. That that was just pure baseball right in front of me. And I couldn't ask for a better venue to step out into. And when the first day I stepped out there onto that field, I can't even explain how excited I was just to know that I had reached the pinnacle of my sport. Yeah. And yet I was a dwarf because, man, I, I'm I'm surrounded by guys that's got names, and I'm never going to be anybody in this game. I'm just going to – but I'm going to enjoy playing up here. I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to make the most of this. Yeah. That was my attitude my first five seconds on a ball field. Uh, not to mention it was one of the most beautiful stadiums in all of baseball then. God, those the, when you, the more I hear people talk about them, those really were damn good teams, you know, when you think back to those players. Oh. Well, I was on 77-78 uh, Western Division Championship yeah, no uh, kidding. teams, and I tell you, you know, when you're going up against the Anaheims and the Nolan Ryans and and all of the pitchers that you faced, and the, you know, Texas was basically seller team then, and uh, basically Cleveland. I remember going to Cleveland, and you know, I'd never been to that old stadium before, <laughs> and I go to the stadium. Man, they didn't have hardly anybody there. Yeah, it's like 20 people there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was really, they had like, I want to say they had like uh, several thousand people there. And when you look at several thousand people in that huge stadium, you kind of go, really, there's that many people here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I felt bad for them. We, you know, Milwaukee, man, they were on a tear back in those days. They had plenty of crowds and they had plenty of talent, man. That was one of the most gifted ball teams. Uh, but then I got to play against the Yastrzemskis and the Dwight Evans and and all of the names that I'd seen on TV and watched as a kid, man. I mean, I'm bumping elbows with Yogi Berra. I watched him many times. As a matter of fact, I was watching the Yankees, Yankees game the day I rolled over on a blanket that I was laying on watching it and told my dad, I said, I'm going to play Major League Baseball one day, Dad. <laughs> and, uh, all right, well, maybe one day you will, son. But I got to actually meet Yogi Berra. I got to pitch against Dale Berra, and Yogi Berra was in the uh, in uh, the uh, instructional league when Bill Fisher got me up to ninety-five miles an hour, huh. and uh, I, he got to see it. What? So, 
What was those that? those years, Dave? I played with. I mean, I played with guys that understood the game of baseball, and they made it fun. Nobody, we weren't. I heard Frank White say something on his radio show yesterday that made me stop and think. You know, we'd go out, we were having fun, we were relaxed. He's right. I was never cranked up when I went out there. Man, I just relaxed and just enjoyed the moment. And then when the phone rang and they said, "Magilla, you're up, I'd get up and, and son, I pitched like I was fixing to go out there. Well... Galen Cisco had to calm me down a little bit. Hey, you know, he said, just get loose. He didn't say you're fixing to go in. And so I, I had to kind of learn how to pace myself. But just the, the fact that I was standing in front of fifty and 60,000 people uh, every time I got on a mound and that I was pitching against Don Baylors and Sexto Lescano and uh, Rodney Scott and Jerry Tab and all the various people that I pitched against. I mean, pinch me. Wake me up. Is this real? <laughs> well, how, Seriously. One thing I want to know, how did you uh, – I forgot to ask you earlier. How did you all of a sudden add four to five miles an hour in like two days? What was it, just some real simple mechanical adjustment or what? Well, I was the old if – you can, if you can straight back, straight forward type rock and fire pitcher. I didn't have a pivot and all that leg kick and all that stuff. I, I kicked my leg, but it was kind of like the old-style pitching. And my dad never pitched, but he showed me what he thought it ought to look like based on what he saw the Dizzy Deans of the world and all that do. Because Dizzy, Dizzy Dean and Pee Wee Reese were household names in my, in my neighborhood. So dad taught me as best he could how to pitch. Well, I'd step straight back. I didn't step off to the side and pivot my toe i stepped straight back and kept my front cleat over the front of the uh, rubber and i came straight at you and uh i did that through three years of college as well but when uh but when bill fisher got me he took me down on the foul line there on one of the fields at the complex and they had uh wooden foul lines embedded in the ground and so he said to McGillberry, he said, I'm going to teach you something. He said, it's going to take a lot of time. And it was there were three balance points in pitching. And I, I, I did it for somebody yesterday. They said, well, what are you talking about? And I stood up, and I can still stand there like a stork. And uh, it, it, it was to teach me how to set myself up to pivot. I pivoted my leg and got my foot straight down into the groove. And then I lifted my knee up, and I held it there for three seconds. Hmm. And then I put it down and did it over and over and over and over and over. I did that, and everybody else, Dave, they were running around the four fields doing the cycles, what we called it. They were doing the workouts on the various fields. And Willie Wilson, I could hear him above everybody. <laughs> hey, Stork. Hey, Stork. Come on over here and play baseball with us. So after hearing that, you know, your blood's running pretty heavy then because you, you're ticked off because you're embarrassed. They're over here working with me like I'm a kid. But Bill Fisher said, you do this. So the second day, he got me out there, and then he had where I picked my leg up, I count to three, and then I'd stride, go into balance point number two, and i hold it for three seconds. Arms raised. He showed me what he wanted. So balance point three was the follow-through and getting ready to field the ball or field your position. So I learned all that in three days. And the fourth day, I'm out on the field pitching in an exhibition game. It was just a... Uh, exhibition game in minor leagues. Uh, the Pirates were down from Rat City. 
they were down, and Dale Bear was there. And so Yogi Bear and John Shearholz are sitting on a golf cart behind the backstop. And Bill Fisher said, you're going to pitch the uh, sixth innings. And I said, okay. So uh, I got up, loosened up, got out on the mound. I think I threw about nine, ten pitches, struck out the side, went to sit down on the bench, went back over uh, to Bill Fisher. Hey, good kid. Good job, kid. All right, you got one more in it. So I went out there, threw, I don't know, 10, 15 pitches, struck out the side, went over. But the whole time, Yogi Berra and John Sherholz are clocking me. I didn't know, I didn't really pay any attention to them. I don't see anything but the catcher's mitt. So anyway, uh, Bill Fisher said, kid, uh, you, you realize what you just did? And I said, well, I, yeah, I struck out the side both times. Said, yeah, but you're throwing the ball 95 miles an hour now. Uh, oh, okay, that's good. He said, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, obviously, John Shearholz realized that, hey, this ain't no run-of-the-mill kid that we're working with. This guy's got some tools. and So, you know, I went on with, with that. And in 1977, they – asked me and Dan Quisenberry to come down to Fort Myers. Well, I didn't know what that was. I said, well, shoot, I ain't never been called up like this. Uh, so we go down there, and what it was is just to give their pitchers a little break, and so we threw batting practice. But it was also to watch us. So I'm out there on the mound on the field behind uh, the practice field. And so uh, George Brett's up there, and uh, Galen's saying, all right, look, just throw normal bat in practice. He said, I don't know how you throw bat in practice, but he said, just start out, and I'll let you know if you're doing okay. Well, yeah, George Brett up there, so you're obviously not going to go up and in. So uh, I'm throwing bat in practice. George is, I'm, I tell you, you're talking about a sweet swing. Yeah. So so uh, I'm, I'm sitting there throwing, and Cisco said, well, throw, throw me a breaking ball. Okay, so I threw what I called a curveball. It was a spinner. That's all it was. It didn't really break. It it broke because it was like a changeup. So he looked at me and he said, "Randy, you ever thrown a slider?" And I said, "Well, no, sir. I I don't even I don't even know what a slider is." I said, "Never heard that term." He said, "Well, let me show you." And he showed me how to grip it. And he said, "Daryl," he said, "Randy's gonna throw a couple of sliders." Okay, so I sat up there and he said, and "He said I want you to throw them hard. Just throw them." and let them come off. Well, I threw a slider out there. It broke about maybe seven to eight inches away from the plate, and it <laughs> broke down. And got in Cisco said, now, do that again. And I did it again, and then I went from Randy McGillberry, a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, to Randy McGillberry, a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, and a 90-mile-an-hour slider. <laughs> so that in itself drew a little more attention, obviously. So it wasn't long after that. Uh, you know, I go to Jacksonville, start the season out in Jacksonville. In a few weeks, I moved up to AAA, and in AAA, I kind of razzle and dazzle a little bit. And then the next thing I know, I'm in the big leagues in 77. Uh, and kind of like my world's turned uh, 180 degrees in one short year. Yeah, well, so, you, uh, your, so your big league debut, I want to talk about that. It's September 6th yeah. of 77 at Seattle. Now, it's two shutout innings for you. You combine with Split and Latell on a four-hit shutout. So what sticks out most about that first big league game? Well, I'm in the dome, and you don't realize how small the dome is until you see baseball being hit in it. Yeah, no doubt. And you're going, man, I don't want to give one of those up. <laughs> uh, so basically, uh, it was just, you know, you, 
you're in close quarters, you, you just feel like you cramped. But the first time I'd ever, well, no, it's not the first time I'd ever pitched in the Dome. I think I pitched in the Dome in New Orleans one time in AAA. Uh, maybe that was next year. But I'm in a Dome. You know, I've never been in a Dome before. So I'm sitting there throwing, and, you know, the guys are all with me and everything, and I felt very confident. I mean, I'm in the big leagues. My adrenaline's pumping, and I just want to just take and run that ball to the plate as fast as I can. And But, you know, Daryl Porter had caught me a few times in spring training and stuff, so Daryl just came out to the mound when he handed me the ball, and he said, now look, he said, uh, you short hopped a few, and he said, uh, I can tell you as a catcher, we don't like our arms to get beat up. So he said, try to keep the ball up a little bit. But he said, don't want it up too much. These guys can hit. And I said, okay. I said, you give me a target, I'll throw to it. Well, as best I can remember, after the ball game, Daryl said, golly, man. He said, I don't know if I could have done it better if I had guided the ball myself. I said, well, I said, uh, I said, I just thank God I'm here, man. And he said, well, go get you some rest, buddy. We'll do this again tomorrow. <laughs> and that's, that's really all I remember. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot. Ken Kaiser was umpiring there. Uh, he had that he had that thing where he kicked his leg up and threw his arm down. Uh, that was what I noticed about him. But but really, I was just in awe that I was in big leagues and I was actually pitching in big league baseball. Yeah. So that first year, you get in two more games. Then they're both in game ones of a doubleheader. A trivia question. I'm sure you probably know the answer to. But your first strikeout was September 15th. Who was it against? Manny Sanguian. Got it. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, I got the ball, but I, now I've got a couple of other balls that I uh, got signed. Uh, one was from Jerry Tab. We were playing ball, and uh, the ball, uh, I think, went out of the stadium. But the, the trick was is that uh, the top ring in one of the rows of lights had gone out. And uh, Paul Splitter went over after Jerry Tab hit the ball. I think it bounced a ground double, or it might have been home run. I can't remember. But anyway, he went over and got Jerry Tab to sign a baseball and give it to me. Thanks, Randy. Jerry Tab. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So I've got a I've got a few baseballs in my repertoire that aren't necessarily complimentary. Uh, and now George Brett told me it's the only ball, only ball I've ever seen hit in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I took a little razzing off of that one, but uh, but really, uh, all in all, uh, the strikeout against Sanguin was on a slider. Manny Sanguin, I tell you, I don't care how old that guy got, that guy could swing a stinking bat. Yeah, he was good. And, and uh, so I when I when I struck him out, I knew I'd arrived because he was he was swinging for what I was throwing. There was no doubt about it. But he just couldn't reach it because uh, he wasn't sure if I was coming inside or not. And uh, so, so that was my first keepable baseball in major leagues. Yeah. Well, so the next year is 1978. So you, you go back mm-hmm. up to KC again. Before we talk about KC again, uh, Omaha. So your favorite memories of pitching in Omaha and Rosenblatt Stadium? Rosenblatt Stadium was a beautiful ballpark to pitch in. And for my type of pitcher, it was a great ballpark because I didn't, I didn't give up a whole lot of home runs. Um, I threw the ball low and hard, and every once in a while, and Randy Bass will tell you a little different, uh, Randy hit a ball out one night. It went over the right field fence, and there was a Braniff Airlines going down over in um, over in uh, Council Bluffs. And this is no lie. He had been traded, and he was playing for the Denver Bears. And Randy hit a home run off of me that was as high as the lights were then. <laughs> it looked, it went out, and they saw the Braniff flying down, and they heard an elephant uh, 
sound off over in the zoo right behind the fence. And the rumor after that was it's the only ball they've ever seen hit and kill an elephant and a Braniff Airlines at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) So so I got credit for that one. But Rosenblatt Stadium represented an icon. I mean, I'm pitching where thousands of people had been playing ball in College World Series. And, you know, I'm, I'm in a stadium that, if you mention it, everybody in the country knows where this stadium is. Yeah. And so, and you're playing on a field that, that I don't know, it's just complimentary to my style of pitching. So I never felt, I never felt uh, afraid to let go of a fastball in there. Plus, of the defenses, the Royals had a tremendous uh, minor league program then. Um they had a lot of talent in the minor leagues, uh, but so did the White Sox, the uh, Phillies, uh, Okie City, Wichita, um, uh, Des Moines, uh, uh, Indianapolis, the Tigers, and all that, Evansville. All those teams, man, I mean, they were loaded with the guys that were eventually going to be the big league teams. Um, and to when we came to Rosenblatt, I, did, I never – was afraid to throw a ball in Rosenblatt Stadium. Uh, I'd throw it and wish them well. Uh, so that stadium, too, it, it also, all the people that came before me, um, I know that stadium had had big league uh, future Hall of Famers come through those doors, and you just, you're, you're in a nostalgic place. Oh, yeah. And I, I took that as one of the humbling experiences in my career because I actually uh, can say that name and everybody here at work, everybody that I talk to uh, when I'm doing uh, uh, speak, uh, speaking engagements, everybody knows where Rosenblatt Stadium is. So, uh, you know, they say, golly, man, you pitched where the College World Series is. Yeah, I, I did. So that, with uh, along with all the various uh, elbows that I got to rub in there. The fans, what a tremendous Omaha supports the Royals. Man, they they have always had great crowds at that place, and the friendliest people uh, that I have ever met were in Omaha. Uh, people that didn't know you from Adam's house cat, but I also, Dave, I appreciated the fans. I tried to show my appreciation as much as I could. I tried to sign autographs until I couldn't sign anymore. Because that's how everybody makes a living. And if you don't have fans, then it's no better than playing a little sandlot ball game out there with just <laughs> you and, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's, fa- that's, that's the actually fans true. make the ball game. Yeah. Uh, so that second call of the big leagues, so you, you ended up spending three full months in the 1978, and you're a nice long time in the big leagues. You know, yes. What do you remember about that second call? Anything stick out about that? Um. Well, I knew that... Uh, uh, they were uh, Andy Hassler, I believe, had uh, been put on the DL. I'm not really sure, but uh, when I got there, I, I basically felt like, okay, I'm filling in a void here to fill the roster. And uh, you know, when I got there, I was already old hat with all the guys. Everybody knew who I was, and you know, I'd met Al Hrabowski, and Al and I had a little, you know, we had a little dissension between us because, I, you know, I appreciated the old older guys and their mentoring and their tutelage and all this stuff. I appreciated that. But at the same time, um, I also had enough confidence in myself that I didn't worry about who 
was my competitor or anything like that. I, I believed in Whitey Herzog. Whitey Herzog had me designated in the lineup for a specific role, and that's the role I tried to fill. I didn't worry about, am I as good as Hrabowski? Am I as good as Leonard? I didn't worry about how good I was. I knew I was good because I was there. Right. Um, I just wanted to fulfill my role. And uh, so, you know, I went out there, and during that three months, though, now, I had a dry spell. I want to say it was like 21 straight days or maybe more that I didn't even – I, I think I ended up getting up in the bullpen in Cleveland just because I wanted to. And I remember Galen Sisko getting up and getting in front of me because I was just throwing the crap out of the ball. And Galen Sisko got up and stood between me and the catcher. And he said, McGillberry, go sit down. He said, no, come sit down here by me. And he said, no, look. He said, I realize you hadn't pitched, but he said, you got to be patient, man. And he said, it don't do you any good to have your little tyrants down here and try to show somebody, hey, but I even had guys from other teams going, hey, McGillberry, when they were running in the uh, outfield before the game. Hey, McGillberry, don't worry about it. I sat for 20 days before I got in. said, 21, <laughs> set the new record. And, you know, I'm hearing that from veterans on other ball teams. And it's, you know, it's funny. You have to kind of laugh it off and stuff. But at the same time, it was getting to me because I knew I was good enough to be pitching in a lot of the games. But that was Whitey's decision, and Whitey's, you know, I, I believed in Whitey. Whitey's the best manager uh, that I've ever had. Uh, I respected him. I respected what he told me. Uh, and if Whitey Herzog said, this is the way it is, kid, then that's the way it was. And so uh, I sat for a long time. But when I when they let the bull out of the cage, uh, I, I had a game in Minnesota where I faced them. I think Doug Berg got in trouble early. And Doug was spot starting that game, and he got in trouble early, so that Whitey put me in, and I think I pitched four innings of no hit, sh- uh, no hit ball against them, and basically a no hit shutout, uh, w- with the exception of one that I thought should have been an error. Uh, uh, what's his face? Golly, that's terrible. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Rod Carew. Rod Carew comes to the plate, and Rod Carew knew I was going to throw him low and away. So I threw him away. He hits a line shot right at UL Washington, but it was knuckling. And UL was trying to – he was trying to field it, but the ball knuckled and it went right between his legs. And they gave him a hit on that. And I went, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, okay, too tough to handle, too hot to handle, or whatever you want to call it. But nonetheless, that was the only person that, that uh, hit the ball on me. And if that's the only person that hit the ball off me, then I'm proud of that because yeah. uh, I faced him two times. Uh, but that was when I came out and kind of got back in the groove, and uh, I was running the ball up on that day pretty well. It was, uh, I think it was either a Sunday afternoon game or, or Saturday afternoon. I think it was Sunday afternoon ball game. But, uh, you know, the hardest thing for a guy like me to deal with is – you know, you're out there and you've pitched against the Angels, you pitched against the Don Baylors, you've handled people, you've handled the, uh, oh, shoot, the, uh, shoot, trying to think of their names now. Uh, but anyway, I had uh, KT, uh, Kenny Landro. Um, uh, you know, you're handling people, and all of a sudden you see a situation where you know that's your situation and you don't get it, and you kind of just start going, what I do? And, you know, it might be something that Whitey sees that I'm not even thinking about. So I had to be, you know, I had to be thankful that, uh, that I had a manager that, 
you know, was looking down the lineup, looking at their possibilities of who they could put in and all that stuff. But that was the toughest thing I ever had to do was just sit day after day in the bullpen without action. <clears throat> yeah, well, it's tough to stay fresh that way. Well, you, yeah. one, one thing I wanted to come back to and ask you about, you mentioned earlier the time that your dad kind of shook his head and put his, you know, the head in his hands. Oh. What, what was that story? <laughs> well, Minnesota had, uh, they were in Kansas City, and dad was there, and it was the last, um, it was the last few games of the season. I think it was the last home game uh, in series of the season for us. So they're there for uh, Saturday, Sunday, and or, no, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So Saturday night, I'm in against them, and I'm throwing pretty well. But all of a sudden, um, <clears throat> uh, their third baseman, golly, I can't think of his name, but I used to be able to call it right off the top of my head. Anyway, Al Herboski was pitching. He he gets uh, he gets knocked out of the game, and they put me in. And uh, I go in, and I'm throwing against uh, and get a, a top ground ball. Guy gets on base, and Lyman Stock, Bost- I mean, not Lyman, Bostock, uh, Rod Carew comes up, and Rod Carew uh, takes the outside low ball, hits it, and bounces it uh, right over George Brett's head, and when it hit the turf back on the uh, behind third, it immediately headed to the foul line and went over to the uh, sidelines. And uh, Rod Carew had a stand-up double, and they scored a run off of me, and it was just like bang, bang. And then um, then they laid down a bunt. And I went over to field the bunt, and when I picked the bunt up, I was turning to make my throw to first base, and the ball rolled from my index and middle finger down to my last two fingers. And I grabbed it real quick and started to make the throw anyway. And if I'm not mistaken, Dave, you might have to ask Whitey about this, but I believe it went right over Whitey's head into the stand. <laughs> well, you know, it don't take long to get a visit after that. So I'm standing on the mound. Whitey comes out there and, hey, kid, I'm going to get you some help and uh, uh had a rough night. So I'm walking over to the bench. You know, I'm not real happy. And I look up into the family section where mom and dad were sitting. And out of the thousands of people that were sitting in the stands and out of the uh, couple of 100, 300 people that might have been sitting in that particular area, my dad's head is the only one I saw. He had it, lay, he had it hung down and he was shaking it side to side like, no, why me? <laughs> and I got on the bench, and so after the ball game, I walked into Whitey's office, and I said, Whitey, I said, I, I have a favor to ask of you. And he said, what's that, McGilla? I said, if there's all, at all a possibility, I want you to give me an opportunity to pitch tomorrow. I want to I show you that that was a fluke, that that was not Randy McGilvery on the mound. I don't know what happened, but that ain't me. I said, if you get a chance, will you put me in tomorrow and give me an opportunity to pitch and show you what I can do? Because, I mean, the Yankees were coming to town that Tuesday. So I think it was Tuesday. So next day, uh, he told me, okay, I'll do what I can, kids. So the next day I get the phone call. I don't forgot what inning it was, but he put me in. And I went out there and said, let me tell you what. Of course, Dad didn't hang his head and shake it. He didn't do anything. But I can guarantee you, when I walked off that mound, I had done what Randy McGilberry did. Huh. And uh, so I thank Whitey for the opportunity and everything. And then, you know, then uh, 
that was the I think that was the final day, and then I think we had Monday for rest, and I think the Yankees came to town that Tuesday. But that was um, that was my dad's first major league baseball game. Oh, really? And he got to, he got to, he did. The only thing is, I'm glad I didn't have to ride home with him. <laughs> I used to get a lot of constructive criticism in the back seat while Dad was driving us home after our ball games when I was a kid growing up. <laughs> That's so, great. That's great. Well, 1979, I got my old Royals media guide right here, actually. It says on yes, your sir. on your bio that you taught school in the off-season. So how many off-seasons did, you know, did you teach for, and what were you teaching? And where at, I guess, well, is another question. Um, it was 1977. Um, you know, I didn't make a lot of money as a minor leaguer, and, I, and, and when you got to the big leagues and you started getting that paycheck, you thought, man, I should have been here all along. Hmm. But uh, – but I, I was uh, working during the off season just to make enough money to put gas in the car and to you know help you know buy some groceries with my parents. Uh, so anyway, uh, I taught at uh, the various high schools in Mobile where they had problem children. Uh, I was a substitute teacher for Mobile County, so I got to go to all the hot spots where they had uh, they had racial issues or they had class uh, classroom attendance issues or stuff like that. And so the teachers would always leave you their work assignments. And so when I would go into the classes, I had a beard and, you know, I was, I was, I had, I had meat in places where it's settled now. I had meat in places that kind of intimidated high school kids. So I'm, I'm walking around and I'm basically, um, a, a leverage. I'm the, I'm the equalizer in the school system is about what I amounted to. <laughs> you're going to be in class. You're going to put your head down. I don't care if you learn anything, but when I pick up your paper at the end of the day, it's going to have your name, the date on it, and an attempt to do something. And uh, back in those days, you could paddle. And uh, <laughs> I can tell you this. They, they said, boy, I bet you can swing a paddle. And I said, well, I can show you. <laughs> Nobody ever wanted to take me up on that. <laughs> Did so, you did you tell them right away you were a baseball player? Well, they knew. I, I was teaching at most. Of, I mean, I was a household name in Mobile, Alabama. Oh, so okay, okay. When they heard when they heard Randy McGilberry's coming, there was always a coach at the schools uh, that I was at that knew me that had either coached against me or coached me or something like that. So th- my name was pretty synonymous with most of the schools I was going to. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, <laughs> but it was. It was fun. I mean, you made seventeen dollars a day, big money back then, huh, Dave? Yeah, yeah, huge money, right? Seventeen dollars a day. Good grief. Well, so yeah. nineteen seventy nine. Two questions about that year. So obviously a disappointing year because you didn't make it back to the big leagues that year. But they. So yeah. first, first of all, how disappointing was that? Second of all, why did they choose to make you a starter in nineteen seventy nine? Well, uh, Whitey Herzog didn't tell me that, but I figured that if I'm Starting down here, they knew what Jerry Blaylock had seen me in college. I could start and pitch an entire game in college one day, and I'd come back in short relief the next day, or vice versa. It didn't make any difference to me. I was an iron Mike. So I believe when they saw that I pitched that four innings in Minnesota and did well and still had plenty left in me, I think what they decided to do was make me a spot starter and start trying to look to the future in the bullpen. And, uh, and, you know, that was a compliment to me because, I mean, I was a starting pitcher all my life. 
uh, fill-in work was because we didn't have anybody else. Randy had to pitch. So uh, I just learned how to do it all. And uh, so Gary Blaylock gave me the opportunity to get to the big leagues, and then the rest was up to me. But I'm sure Gary Blaylock had played into that equation somewhere. <clears throat> yeah. And then so I mean, did you ever think you were going to go back to the big leagues that year? Well, I was going back to the big leagues that year. What happened was, is in Denver, I separated my shoulder. I had a slight separation. and uh, But that night I was going back to the big leagues, and you talk about a deer in the headlights. I said, well, then why am I, why wouldn't I just put in the hotel and told not to move? Yeah. Uh, so I was going back that night to the big leagues uh, to help them on their run for the rest of the season. And uh, but I ended up in six weeks of rehab, and I came back. I threw the ball just as well, and everything. But I I never got that opportunity again. Huh. And uh, you know, I ended up being traded for Kevin Coble uh, to the team that I really didn't want to play for anyway. Yeah, the Mets. Yeah, it's nineteen eighty. Yeah, so, and and to be honest with you, uh, when I when I was departing from the Royals, you know, what happened was I had a manager, Joe Sparks, I believe, and mm-hmm. I was in AAA, and we were in Okie City. And, I mean, he hadn't pulled my trigger for a while, and I'm sitting there going, you know, what's going on? I was working out. I got in the best shape of my life. I was down to about 197 pounds, lean and mean. I was running every day. I was gassing the ball at 95. I was Everything was in place. And uh, But I wasn't pitching. I was – I mean – no-brainers for me. And I just sit there and guys bump me, hey, man, what's going on with you? And I'm going, I don't know. So finally I had the conversation. We were leaving the airport or going through the airport to get on the plane to go back to Omaha. And I asked Joe Sparks because I actually picked up the bullpen bench in Okie City and threw it over the fence. <laughs> I'm serious. That's like Chuck I'm Norris. I love it. I was ticked off. And, I, I'm, you know, we lost the game. And I'm sitting there going, man, that's – that's where I could shine. Um, so anyway, um, I asked him in the airport. I said, Joe, you got to square me, buddy. I said, I'm not an idiot. I said, I, I see something going on. You tell me what's going on. And I won't mention a word of this until after I'm gone. But I said, but please tell me what's going on and be man enough to help me. Because I said, I've got a family that depends on me. And he said, well, Randy, he said, I don't tell him I told you this, but you're being traded. And he said, uh, you're, you're being traded and you're going to be leaving here pretty soon. And he said, so if I were you, I'd go ahead and start making plans to travel. And I said, can you tell me where? He said, no, I'm not going to tell you that. But he said, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be traded soon. And uh, so <clears throat> I get back to Omaha and I've been going to the field a couple of days. And so I'm in my apartment and I get the phone call from John Sheerholz. He said, Randy, uh, John Sheerholz here. Just want to let you know we've uh, traded you to the Mets. Uh, you need to report there. You need to be there by Sunday at five o'clock. And this was a Friday. Jeez. Oh, you need to be there on on Sunday by five o'clock, and you you'll uh, speak to this guy, I guess the general manager for the club. And uh, he said, and, and, and the best of luck to you. And uh, you know, I'd always thought the world of John Sheerholz, and and um, and never you know really held any any disdain for John, but I just thought, man, you know, why me? What, what did I do to cause this? And uh, so anyway, I, I get in the car, I pack all my stuff. I tell my wife, look, I got to be in 
Tidewater, Virginia. Um, Got to be there Sunday evening. I pack all my stuff up. We're riding through the mountains in a place I've never been in my life before, riding through uh, the Virginias and all the mountains. And we come down, and I've just about uh, torn the transmission up in my automobile. We get down out of the mountains and finally get over to Tidewater, and when I get there, I, I ask them, where's my apartment? And, hey, you need to be on the field dressed by 5 o'clock. And I went, hey, i got a family in my car, and... Well, if you if you want to make this team, you better be here at five o'clock. So I go and find a hotel room. I said, Well, you're gonna pay for a hotel room. So they paid for a hotel for one night. I come to the field. My son and my wife are in a hotel room. All of our stuff is still packed up in a trailer and in my car. And I I'm sit, I'm sitting on the field. I'm not gonna pitch. They knew I wasn't gonna pitch. And instead of letting me go and get things squared away in my apartment, they made me wait till the next day. Well, that already put a bad taste in my mouth. But I'm sitting there with guys like Mike Scott, Ed Lynch, Hubie Brooks, Wally Bachman, Mookie Wilson. Those are the guys that I'm playing ball with. Just met them. Don't even know who they are. Didn't take me long to figure out who they were. Yeah. And and to figure out where they were going. Uh, but I'm playing there in a uh, in a, the international league, and and I, I've already made up my mind. I'm getting out of ball, and it wasn't I'm getting out of ball because the Royals got rid of me. I'm getting out of ball because my arm trouble is starting to cause me to lose uh, movement on my fastball. I'm a little fed up with the numbers game. I've done what I really wanted to do, and you know, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get out of this, and I'll see what happens. So at the end of the season, I uh, I think it was like two two and a half months, something like that, maybe three months. At the end of the season, we pack it up. I'm going home. And uh, I go to the general manager and tell him, I, I, I just want to let you know, I, I want my release. I, I don't want to play for the Mets. And I said, I just want my release. Um, and I wrote a letter to that effect. Well, then I have uh, somebody, don't know who it was, called me. And I was working at, a, at an engineering firm and a, a tank builder in uh, Satsuma, Alabama. And I get a call from a guy and said, Randy, this is so-and-so with the New York Mets. And uh I said, yeah, I would like to have my release. And he said, well, he said, we're, we're not going to release you. And I said, well, I want my release. I do not want to play for y'all. <laughs> well, we want you to go to Jackson, Mississippi, and be the pitching coach for uh, our double-A ball team. And you'll still be active so you can pitch, but we want you to train these guys. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not riding anybody's buses in the Texas League. I said, I'm done. I want my release. Well, I didn't hear from them. And in the meantime, Galen Sisko called me. <clears throat> Galen was now with the Toronto Blue Jays. And Galen Sisko called me and said, Randy, if you can get your release, we want you to go to AAA with us. We want you to sign and go to AAA in Denver with us and then possibly get back to the big leagues. So I'm calling up the Mets, and I'm saying, what's going on with my release? And, well, you know, we, you know, Randy, we want you to go to Jackson. And pick. I said, hang on just a second, Dave. No, no problem. board tell them uh, give me about 10 15 minutes uh so so anyway i'm uh i'm uh asking them on the phone and they finally gave me my release they called me again after christmas which that's you know that's death to a ball player trying to get on somebody's roster the mets finally called me up after christmas i want to say it was like 
in February. They called me up and said, Randy, we've decided to go ahead and give you your release. And I said, aren't you the nice guy? <laughs> I said, that's why this is probably why I didn't sign with you guys out of high school is because of this kind of bull right here. I said, you just shot down an opportunity for me to do something with my career. I said, but that's okay. I said, I'm done. And so I said, send me my release. Well, they sent it to me. Well, you know, then I tried to get hooked up with some ball overseas just to stay in the loop. Nothing available. So I basically bowed out of baseball, and, you know, I just started doing pitching lessons, and I did that for 20 years. But, but I bowed out with a very bad taste in my mouth for the political side of baseball. And, uh, you know, that I never was good with that kind of stuff. Um, I probably said a few things in my career that probably put a bad taste in some of management's mouth. But, you know, Dave, I was the kind of guy, I didn't have to go up and ask somebody, hey, am I any good? I didn't have to ask people that. I figured if I'm on a stage with George Brett, Frank White, Daryl Porter, John Watham, Whitey Herzog, and and company, if I'm I'm on the stage with these guys, I, I, I don't even have to ask that question. But, you know, I grew up in an early age where, I didn't ask that question when I was a kid. I knew what I could do, and it's just, hey, if you can do better than this, then do it. So so really, that's that's kind of how my career ended. How long did it take you to get over that? I mean, are you over it now, or do you still get mad about it? Oh, no, I, no, I, you know, when I got into the real world, Dave, as they call it in the sports world, and when I got in the real world and understood that Politics is alive and well no matter where you are, and your name can only take you so far, and then you have to produce, or maybe not. It just depends on who you are and (laughs) what they think of you. So I've I've dug my spurs in, and and my belief was, and my dad always taught me, don't let anybody give you anything that you don't deserve, because there's always going to be strings attached. But he said, and never discount how good you really are, because you might deserve what they give you. So what you got to look at is, do I deserve that, or am I getting this because it's just a favor that I'll have to answer for later on? And so I've lived my life that if I deserve it, then I expect it. If I don't, then I don't expect it. But now in the real world, I just don't expect it. Uh, I work hard. I have good work ethics. I was told in the big leagues, uh, when I run my sprints in the outfield, I was told to slow down. You're making us look bad. <laughs> I said, well, guys, I'm sorry, but this is how I got here. I'm not hardly going to stop that now. But but in itself, I understood what they were saying. Hey, you're here, kid. Relax a little bit and enjoy it. it they weren't getting on to me. They were trying to help me. And now that I'm 61 years old, I've been in the work world now since I left baseball in 19, basically 1980. I started in the work world. And uh, done a lot of things around engineering, construction, management, uh, safety, and I've I've really grown outside of it. But I had to learn that it's not always going to be in my favor. And in spite of it all, you know how good you are. You just have to keep your nose to the grind, and you have to keep plugging away because somebody's going to see it one day. Yeah, that's, that's really that's good. That's pretty much how I've lived my life. That's pretty good advice right there. I might might write that quote down later. Uh, so last two things for you then. So I guess, first of all, just your favorite memories of your times in the Royals organization and pretty much all positive you know, memories. Oh, gosh, yes. Man, I, I couldn't ask for better. I mean, Kansas City is a class organization. Now, I didn't agree with everything that was done. You know, I was pulled off the roster in 19... 19- 
78 uh, at the very last minute um, for the playoffs. I wasn't actually on the team. Um, there were some things I disagree with, but, but at the same time, I also understand it because I know baseball, and I know what people think about now. I've had a chance to manage. I've had a chance to, to see baseball from the spectator side and to sit there and just blow my son's mind away on how pitchers, if they're really on their game, this is how they're going to pitch this guy. And I'd sit there and he'd go, how do you know that? <laughs> well, I know that because I was under some of the best baseball players and coaches in all of baseball, and I paid attention. And, uh, and the, the lessons that I learned in baseball were lessons that are good for life. They're not just good for baseball. They're good for life because it teaches you how to methodically take things apart and to try and analyze why something took place rather than just jump to uh, conclusions. And so as I look back, my days with the Royals uh, – were some of the most memorable days I had because you're at the pinnacle of your sport. People are paying to watch you play baseball. And I was, I tried to be a scholar of the game, but I also tried to be a gentleman of the game. I had them turn the lights off on me more than one time in Kansas City signing autographs. Hmm. And uh, I have opened the doors up on my, back in the day, I'm, I'm dating myself, but I opened up my customized van. <laughs> And I had like a stack. It must have been a hundred. I don't know how many of those black and white photos they give us, but I had a stack of them. And my wife was falling asleep. I signed every one of them and handed every one of them out to anybody that was standing outside my van waiting. Until they were gone, I signed. And, uh, you know, if my wife fell asleep, that had to have been well over an hour. <laughs> so, so I'm just telling you that my love for the game of baseball and I expressed it one time. The players called us in, Dave, and I and, and I, I don't mean to eat up a bunch of your time. No, but, this is great. But but the one there was a meeting we had in the clubhouse in uh, uh, Fort Myers, and it was about the strike. Um, and I want to say it was 1979. And the players, Jerry Terrell was our player agent, and uh, you know they they called us in one by one, you know, as rookies, you know, because we were, they were voting as veterans, and but they called us in and asked us our opinion. And so when they called me in, I, I was sitting there on the table, and I told them, I said, guys, personally, I can negotiate my own contracts because what Randy McGillberry requires to play a game in life that everybody would kill to play might not be exactly what y'all would think. But, guys, as long as I'm happy and content and I can live my life the way I want to, I don't need anybody to strike to get me more money. But I said, I understand that's not what the strike's all about. But I said, but when was the last time? I said, I, I looked at I said, A.O., Al, um, Dennis, all you guys, what did you feel like the first time you stepped your foot on a Major League Baseball field and you realized you were there? What did that feel like? And I said, I feel like that every day I step on the practice field, every day I step on the game field, every day in spring training, every day during the season. I said, I feel like that. And I said, and, and I don't lose that enthusiasm, that love. But I'm humbled because I, I was blessed by God to be here. And I said, what, 
what point in, in your career did you lose that feeling? And when I lose that feeling, I've got to get out of baseball. And so in, in retrospect, that's why I got out of baseball because I lost that feeling. Yeah. Well, and, and that's all I could say. I didn't, I talk, didn't tell them I wouldn't vote or would, but I just told them this is the way I feel guys, because I'm a young guy that just got here and I don't care anything about a strike. I just want to play baseball. So that's, that's, that's pretty much how I feel this very day. I could go out right now and stop it. I could probably throw for a couple of weeks and probably still run the ball up there in the 80s. Seriously? Even oh, at 61? I'm dead serious. <laughs> I believe I could because I taught it for 20 years to kids, and I've made some successful, and I had some that just didn't buy into it and had other coaches mess them up. But I was taught the way I was taught, and I didn't learn how to pitch until the day Bill Fisher grabbed me by the shoulder and said, we're going to make a pitcher out of you. Huh. That's so, so cool. And he's still doing stuff with the Royals even now. So. Yes, he is. I talked to Bill Fisher on the phone. I wished I had Gary Blaylock's number. I'd love to call him. Yeah. But well. I called Bill Fisher a long time ago, and that old fart didn't remember me. <laughs> he, said, he said, oh, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. And I went, well, golly, how could you forget me? And so I guess you can. <laughs> well, but I love Bill Fisher. He, he was a man of his word, too. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to hunt down Gary soon and have a chat with him and hook you guys back up. Um, yes, sir, if you would, that would be great. Oh, absolutely, no problem at all. So I guess last question then is, and we may have to have you on again sometime in the future to get some more stories. Sure. I know there's lots more, but last thing. Oh, a lot more. Yeah, last thing is, you know, what would you like to say to all the Royals fans listening right now? I would love for them to, to know that the players on the ball field, you know, they don't walk out on the field every day saying, boy, I hope I do bad, and I hope I make some enemies in the stands. <laughs> you know, we're just human beings. And, and, you know, we have the same issues that everybody else has. We have financial issues. We have marital issues. We have uh, uh, career issues. We have family issues. Um, we're just human beings. We're just human beings that have managed to get to a, a station in life that we have worked our tails off to get to. And, it's really hard for most people to understand how difficult it is to get to that arena. Um, it's years and years and hours and hours of hard work. And George Brett, without a shadow of a doubt, was one of the hardest working men I've ever seen on a baseball field. I saw him take so many swings. Charlie Lau, that man had a rubber arm. George Brett would take infinite number of grounders and an infinite number of swings every day. So my life, if I could tell a kid to model their life, it would be after the Frank Whites and the George Bretts and the John Wathams. I mean, you know, I, I always felt like John Watham was, was a kind of guy, he was kind of laid back and just, you know, he wasn't a real flashy guy, but what a gentleman and what a catcher. Uh, so so my, my thoughts are, for the fans, remember, if you played sports, remember how difficult it was to get to the next level. And if you if you realize that, then imagine what it must be like to get to the pinnacle of that sport. Yeah. And understand that these guys are trying to perform in front of people every day, and they're performing in front of 60 and 70 and 80,000 folks every time they go on a ball field, whereas you might have competed in front of 500. So 
be be supportive and don't get down on guys because they get into a groove. Try to help them get out of the groove. Support them. Let them know you support them, and make sure that you they they understand that you understand their difficulties. They're human beings. Royals fans were good to you, I take it. Hopefully. I, I love the Royals fans. Good, I good. had some of the greatest fans in Kansas City. Got to see people I hadn't seen in years that went to college with me. So, yes, Kansas City is always going to be a special place in my heart. My son said, Dad, I want you to take me to Kansas City home games and let me walk on the field you pitched on. So this summer, is I plan on doing that. Oh, no way. Well, that's great. We'll have to, we'll have to get some lunch and you know say hi this summer. Absolutely. Then. Absolutely. That's great. So, well. Yeah. Tell the fan, the fans in Kansas City, I've never forgotten them. And there was one fan that stood out amongst all of them that because I kind of took his son under my wing. I don't know if you remember the name or not, or maybe you can dig in, but it's his uh, nickname was Pepsi. Uh-uh. Well, the old the older people will know who he is, and I. But he had a son that was basically blind. And we kind of took them under our wing. I made sure he had passes to get into all the ball games. I gave them family passes every night. And uh, when we had the laser show there on the field one night, I took his son, Patrick, and I took him down on the field, and I let him sit there on the field with me like he was mine. And so to all the fans in Kansas City, thank you very much for the memories. Well, thank you so much for your time. Like I said, we'll definitely uh, be catching up with you again in the near future and look forward to seeing you. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just thanks for the time and all the memories and all you gave to the Royals. All right. Dave, thank you so much for this opportunity. Absolutely. We'll talk soon. Take care. Yes, sir. You too.